Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton Chapter 4, Sicily, 1943 I drove down to the strip in my jeep with my batman, Alec Gall, accompanied by the brigade commander Pip Hicks, the senior medical officer and various staff officers. Silver wings glinting in the sun, 30 Dakotas and Waco gliders were waiting the signal to take off. Mine was the leading glider, and as I climbed into the cockpit with Peter Harding, my adjutant and second pilot, I looked down at the face of Alec Gall for what I thought might be the last time. It was a tense moment. There was a strong wind blowing, the light was hard and brittle, and great waves seemed to leap into the air at the far end of the runway. As the signal to take off was given, the propellers of the Dakotas started up with a whirl, dust flew off the runway and whipped into the air, and the tugs slowly moved into position. Gripping the controls, I gave the thumbs-up signal, the rope tautened, and I heard over the intercom the faint sound of the Dakota pilot's voice. But the crackling and interference was so bad from the beginning to end of the trip that we were never able to hear each other clearly. We moved slowly forward, then faster and faster across the dusty strip until suddenly the Dakota disappeared in the dust, and I was forced to hold the glider in position by the tow rope's angle. Then, still gathering speed, we were out of the dust and in the clear, and there, below, was the Silver Dakota tug, and below her again the sea smothered in foam. It was extremely rough. 
the glider jumping up and down from side to side, and I held on like grim death, concentrating on holding position above the Dakota. But soon I was able to relax as I became accustomed to the movements of the aircraft and its behaviour. After a while, I handed over to Peter Harding, but he was very sick and in no state to fly, so I took back the stick and without relief piloted the glider for the next 400 miles, a tow of four hours, for the time was 6pm and we were scheduled to reach the target or landing zone at about 10 o'clock. Settling down to it, I allowed myself a glance astern. It was an exhilarating sight, for there, stretching back in the evening light, was a great armada of well over 200 aircraft. It was a great moment, one not to be missed, and all the hazards, risks and difficulties still to be faced seemed to dissolve into thin air. But it was rough. The spray seemed to be passing the very wingtips, adding to the sensation of speed. I wondered if German fighters were likely to intercept, and I remember experiencing a sense of astonishment when they did not come. And as the darkness descended, a feeling of elation that we had got away with it, for we would have been sitting ducks if a force of fighters had come across us. And what a target we would have made. The storm did not abate, and as the sun went down, glowing red on the horizon, the foam still sweeping through the gloom, the sea changed from cold blue to dark green, and then to a menacing black. By now my arms were aching intolerably from holding the glider in position, and I felt my endurance ebbing. My eyes and my head throbbed from ceaselessly concentrating on formation flying, and on the tug ahead. Then, as darkness came, the Dakota switched on a row of lights in the trailing edge of the wings, enabling me to see the tug clearly against the dark horizon. It was a little later that I thought I was losing control, for the whole glider seemed to be sliding away to port. I tried the left rudder, then the right rudder, then the full aileron, but nothing happened. I seemed to be in a tremendous skid. I tried every flying trick I knew, but could not alter the position, and as gradually we slid out and alongside the tug, I felt sick with apprehension. How long could the rope last without snapping? Looking out, I saw that the tug was level with us in the moonlight. We were flying side by side. What could I do? I think I must have been shouting at Peter Harding, for I could hear Brigadier Pip Hick's voice, deep and resonant in the back. I say, all is not well in front there. Eventually, how, I shall never know, the glider gradually came back into position. Had we gone down in that sea, we would most likely have never been heard of again. So we flew on, looking down. I saw the cliffs of Malta below, dark, mystical and menacing. And as I passed over them, I thought back to the night when I had flown from Sicily in the Bowfighter and wondered if the same aircraft was anywhere in the darkness protecting us. This was our turning point. From here we flew north towards Sicily, gradually gaining height, and as we did so the air seemed to become calmer. The bright moonlight turned the water to silver, and I began to experience a great peace and elation. As we climbed, I searched the darkness for Sicily and picked out the coast, recognising its shape from the maps and charts we had studied. We changed course again and started to fly down the coast at some 1,900 feet, trying to discern exactly where we were, but it was very difficult to do this and fly the glider at the same time. Suddenly, flak started to come up from Syracuse, which was being raided by the RAF in order to divert the Italians' attention from us. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see other aircraft behind me, for we were trying to fly in what might be termed echelon right, so that we could land in formation on the coast. Can you see the release point, Peter? I cried, trying to locate our position. Another five minutes or so, sir, he replied, looking at his watch. Then, there it is, Peter shouted. I can't see a damned thing, I said, reaching for the release lever. And as I did so, I saw the tug starting to turn and dive. My God, he's pushing off, I shouted, and heaved on the lever. 
The glider lifted up and, after all that bucketing about, seemed light and easy to handle. I turned towards the coast and it was then I received a jolt. As we lost height it seemed as if a great wall of blackness was rising up to meet us and at that moment the moonlight disappeared. I was devastated for I realised that if this was happening to me, it was happening to the other pilots. What were we going to be able to do under these unforeseen conditions? Afterwards, I discovered that the screen of blackness was a pall of dust created by the intensity and length of the gale. It completely obliterated our target. The only thing that could be said in its favour was that it made the night so bad that the Italians could never have expected we would be such fools as to come. Descending into the darkness, I had no idea where I was or what I was doing, but seeing a black object below, I turned my glider towards it, and at that moment, out of the darkness, came a burst of tracer bullets. There was a jolt. I saw the fabric tear open, and my port wing was hit as I began to turn. I straightened her out, and down we came, the sea rushing up to meet us. Somehow, I levelled out as, with a great splash, we ditched. The water came over my head, and as I came up I was aware of shouting and scrambling figures as I fumbled with my straps, spitting out brine. Then two hands grasped my armpits, and I was hauled out of the cockpit onto the fuselage. "'Are you all right, George?' I heard Pip Hicks call. "'Yes, sir, I think so,' I answered, still in a daze. Then, as the mists cleared, I saw the dark forms of my passengers in the sea, on the wings and on the fuselage. "'Everybody keep down on the wings,' Hicks ordered." and we lay flat, looking at the coast, the glider floating like a boat and giving us something substantial to hang on to. A searchlight suddenly shone from the shore, swung across the sea, rested on us for a moment and then swung out again. Keep still, dead still, hissed Hicks. We did. The light swung out again and this time lingered on us. A brief moment and then a hail of tracer bullets streamed from the shore and I remember sinking in the sea, sick and terrified with an awful helpless feeling for there was no cover. The hail of bullets continued in bursts, but by some mercy, none hit us. They were just too high and hit the sea behind us. It's no good staying here, I said to Pip Hicks. Shall we swim for it? OK, George, he replied. I think under these conditions it would be best. Quiet as possible. Come on, everybody. And so we set off. I can remember my feeling of nakedness even now, for the phosphorescence seemed to light up the night as we made our way to shore. Pip Hicks looked huge like a Spanish galleon as he ploughed through the water and I told him to keep down but he said he couldn't because his May West was blown up too high. Soon we reached the shore soaking and shaking with cold but without weapons for they had gone to the bottom. We felt quite helpless. One of us, I can't remember who it was, climbed up the cliff while the rest of us took refuge a few yards from the sea. Suddenly, there was an ear-splitting explosion. Bombs crashed all round us, and an aircraft hit the sea with a tremendous crash, just where we had been swimming. The whole sea caught fire, and I lay there paralysed with fear and shock, watching the flames lapping the shore. Incongruously, all I could think of was the brandy on a Christmas pudding. By now, the enemy had taken alarm, and spasmodic firing was going on all around us. We felt helpless, and I, for my part, was utterly dejected and despondent. All the planning and training exercises in the world could not have foreseen this situation. I wondered what had happened to the other gliders and their crews, and as I lay there, one of them, white and ghostly, was caught in the searchlights. Flack burst all round it, and then there was another, and another, and another. As it proved, some of these gliders, like ourselves, met with misfortune, and the ways their pilots faced their ordeals are worth recording here in their own words. Here is the story of Staff Sergeant T. Ellis. 
I had been one of a flight of four gliders, part of a force of 134 that had set out on the invasion of Sicily, and now my glider was shot down in the sea. After a quick survey of our predicament and a short conference with the officer in charge of the airborne troops that I was carrying, it was decided that being a fair swimmer, I should strip and swim ashore to reconnoitre the coast, then swim back and report. That was the intention, but the plan misfired sadly. The first part I carried out all right, and after resting I began the return journey. I had not noticed in the dark that a strong current was running, and that I had drifted, and I was therefore surprised to find that when I reached what I thought to be my aircraft, it was in fact another from the squadron. I was greeted with the familiar voice of Arthur Baker murmuring, Hello old boy, where did you spring from? I am afraid I wasn't in the mood to be chatty and just swore. Very soon I was back once again on land in company with Arthur and two more airborne troops who were in a similar position to myself. If I remember rightly, between us our total assets comprised two pairs of denim slacks, two shirts and two pairs of boots. My contribution being goose pimples. After a while we could hear the sounds of a patrol searching the rocky coast, so making up our minds quickly we decided to give ourselves up and wait for a favourable opportunity to escape, if and when we had a chance to get better equipped. As soon as the patrol came within hailing distance, we made ourselves known, and then they started to shepherd us, up to the cliffs, to a machine gun post at the top. We hadn't moved more than a dozen yards over the rocks when I sat down and flatly refused to go any farther. The patrol kept on shouting at me, Avante, and motioning with their carbines, but I just shook my head, pointed to my feet, and then at the rocky ground. To my surprise, one of the patrols stooped forward, pointed at me, and then to his back, so without further ado I climbed aboard and away we went. I hadn't a stitch of clothing on, and I wondered if I had full possession of all my faculties. There I was, a prisoner of war, looking like a bareback rider in a circus, being pickerbacked up a cliff by my captor. Arthur Baker, who'd been a schoolteacher in Civvy Street, managed with his knowledge of Latin to be a fairly successful interpreter, and as a result I acquired an old greatcoat to cover my goose pimples, which by now seemed to have doubled in size. At dawn the next morning, after smoking all the Italian cigarettes, clad immaculately in the greatcoat which had just reached my knees, I, in company the rest of my compatriots, moved off, presumably to be put behind the enemy's lines. Just as we started, I was surprised, and not a little amused, to see coming towards us one of my squadron officers. He, it seems, had fared a little better than I. At least he did have a shirt. Occasionally the tail of it flapped in the breeze and exposed his hindquarters to all and sundry. Later, he was provided with a blanket to conceal his nether parts from the startled stares of the women whose farmhouses and villages we passed through. Just after midday, and by many detours, we arrived at a farmhouse just south of Syracuse Bridge. It proved to be the end of the line because soon we were released by advanced elements of the 8th Army who had landed at dawn. My first reaction was to find some clothes and equipment, which I did by looting the baggage of the now-captured captors. All I could find were civilian clothes, after I had dressed, the net result was unique. A pair of lightweight boots, light grey slacks with a thin red stripe, brown striped shirt and a green pullover, topped by the usual cherry belt, which had been given to me earlier. Across my shoulders was an Italian leather bandolier, complete with ammunition. I must have looked across between an Italian onion vendor and a bandit, of which there were many, from the hills. About a week later, we were back in North Africa, settling down once more to a more or less placid life in our tented camp among the olive groves. By way of contrast, here is Staff Sergeant A.H. Mills's story. The North African coastline drew nearer, and in a few minutes the blue ocean turning to grey seemed to stretch endlessly before us. I glanced at my watch and saw it was 7.15pm. 
What an impressive sight it was as the other formations converged on us, forming a gigantic armada. I felt proud to be taking part in this great invasion. A flight of Mustangs wheeled above in the sunshine to give us a feeling of security. Below us, we observed odd ships here and there, their bows cutting large white Vs in the water. I noticed that the crests of the waves were getting more pronounced, pointing to a strengthening of the wind. The sun sank rather quickly towards the sea as I handed over control to my co-pilot and I looked round at my passengers. They seemed cheerful enough, munching barley sugar, but rather quiet, I thought. I glanced at the waves. Yes, the crests were much larger. The wind must be getting very strong, almost up to gale force. The aircraft began to toss, but Dennis showed her that he was the master. I hoped that our navigator would make allowances for drift. I'd better warn him. I raised my mic, but to my dismay it was completely dead. The nylon rope had probably stretched, snapping the intercom cable, which was carried along its length. All we could do now was hope. I have control, I shouted, and Dennis settled back for a well-earned rest. Darkness had fallen swiftly, so that I had to line up on small pinpoints of blue light arranged along the wings of the Dakota. I could still pick out the dim outline of the tug and, at intervals, could see short flashes from the glowing exhausts. Then, just ahead, half a dozen powerful searchlights stabbed the night sky. Malta! We were dead on course. We approached the island low, and in the strange artificial half-light I could see the preceding combinations banking into the turn to bring them on course for Sicily. I began my turn, and the light became steadily weaker as we left Malta behind. It was dark again, and the glider began to buck in the turbulent air. I hoped that no one would be sick, as we wanted to be in a fit condition to do battle on landing. Over three hours had passed since we had left the dusty airstrip at El Gem, and I quickly calculated that we should be there in less than half an hour. Damn that intercom! Then, without warning, the sky became alive with searchlight beams, and streams of white-hot tracer began to form strangely fascinating criss-cross patterns on the dark backcloth of the Sicilian sky. I quickly ordered Dennis and the troops to get on their equipment in readiness for the landing, so that we could be out as soon as we touched down. I was in my gear already, having seen to that earlier when Dennis had been at the controls. Then, tragedy. My towing rope had run into trouble, and to my horror, it came tearing back towards us with its connecting tackle, striking the top of the cabin with a tremendous report, but luckily not breaking the perspex. For a moment I was stunned, and then as I pulled the cable release, I quickly sized up the situation. I judged that we were roughly two miles from the dark smudge that I knew was Sicily, so now I had to carry out an action I dreaded. Ditching. And I was unable to swim. As I gave the order to remove all equipment, remove the side exits, and secure safety harness, I perceived a lone searchlight. It was particularly noticeable as it was immensely powerful and had an unusual blue beam. I turned away from it and saw that in the strong offshore wind we were losing altitude rapidly. I remembered a training lecture we had had back home, when we were told that if we ever had to ditch in a rough sea, the safest way was to land among the troughs and not into wind, which is the normal method. This instructor, whose name I can't recollect, probably saved the lives of us all. I sincerely thank him. The angry sea reached up towards us, the white crests acting as a flare path. We approached closer. I held off as long as possible, and as we touched it, it seemed as if a giant hand held us and tried to drag us under. I pitched forward, nearly breaking my safety harness. The sea surged in, and in seconds was up to my waist. I released myself, and picking up a loose object, a rifle, I think, I battered the cabin roof out. By now, only my head was showing as I somehow dragged myself clear. Next minute, I was sitting on the wing, watching the cabin disappear below the waves. 
Only the main planes now showed above the water. I wondered how long they would remain like that if they sank below the surface. All we had to support us were our small, now inflated, life belts. A quick count told me that so far all had survived the ditching, Dennis having escaped with me and the other six through the side doors. One chap had banged his head on the way out, but fortunately this was the only casualty. We were all alone. I judged at least a mile from shore. The sea was rough, tossing us up and down like a cork. When I look back, I wonder how we managed to stay on that wing, which is not an ideal shape for sailing. We linked arms, lest one of us slip over the side. Our legs were in the water, surprisingly quite warm, while the rest of our bodies almost froze in the strong wind. I was fascinated by small points of light floating by on the surface of the water, later being told that this was caused by phosphorus. I cursed my luck. To think that out of more than 130 gliders, I would be the only one to come a cropper in the sea. Then the powerful blue searchlight I had seen earlier changed the direction of its beam to the horizontal and began methodically to sweep the shore to the accompaniment of glowing streams of tracer from shore-based machine guns. There must be something else to shoot at besides us, I thought. Just then, to my dismay, a red glow from the glider's cabin began to show. Somehow, although underwater, the instrument panel lights had come on, probably due to the action of the sea. I prayed that it would not give our position away. We tried to reach it but found that impossible. However, my prayers were being answered as each time the beam stretched towards us, we sank with the swell, the powerful light either not reaching us or passing harmlessly overhead. My luminous watch told me it was 11.30pm. An hour had passed since we had ditched and almost five hours since we had left the sun-baked North African coast. I prayed again that there would be sufficient buoyancy in the wings to keep us afloat till dawn. I dreaded to think of our chances otherwise. The sound of aircraft engines, as the tugs wended their way back to their bases, had now ceased. Lucky devils, those DAC crews, I thought. They would soon be having a good meal and a rest. Oh, for a nice soft bed now. The activity on the island now increased in tempo. All the searchlights were out of action, but the sky was lit up by gunfire, tracer and explosions here and there. Then against the light of a momentary explosion, I saw outlined something which appeared to be a ship. My heart leapt, as in unison, eight lusty voices cried, Help! Help! The shape grew larger, and I wondered if the ship would be friendly, or whether we would jump from the frying pan into the fire. Near it came, but, to our disappointment, passed a spy disappearing into the gloom. I knew that seaborne landings were also taking place, so I instructed my party to keep up a synchronised yell at regular intervals. If anything, we were now drifting farther away from the shore, the sounds of battle becoming quieter. By this time our throats were becoming dry and sore, our cries were not carrying so far. We were cold and tired. I hoped we would have the strength to hold on. One of the men began to tremble violently, and I had to keep as tight a hold on him as I was able under the circumstances. We had been in the sea for almost five hours, the five longest hours I had ever spent in my life. I kept imagining I could see ships in the murk, but my eyes were playing tricks on me. I saw another black smudge in front of me. Ah, this was different. Shout as loud as you can, lads, I cried, and straining our throats almost to breaking point, we let out a tremendous shout, and to my delight the ship came closer. A voice hailed us. What nationality are you? it queried, and as we replied British, we knew with relief that they were on our side. In minutes we saw a small boat being lowered over the side, soon being rowed towards us by rugged sailors who helped us aboard. A short row back to the ship, and willing hands pulled us to safety. Cups of steaming tea, the best I had ever tasted, were brought to us, and after a hot shower we retired to lovely, soft, warm beds with more tea and bars of chocolate. I slept soundly and long, so much so that I never heard a sound of battle during the night, 
although in the immediate vicinity another ship had received a direct hit, sinking almost immediately. Next morning, or rather the same morning, I rose to find that we had sailed in close to the island. As our own clothing had been ruined, we were issued with tropical kit of the Royal Navy. I went on deck, and to my surprise, there were several gliders still floating in the bay. I hadn't been the only one after all. I discovered that the ship was the Ulster Monarch, and that we had been picked up at 3.30am, about three miles from Cap Moura de Porco. We must have drifted quite away. We spent some time sailing round to the wrecked gliders and managed to salvage a fair amount of equipment. By this time the sea was calm, but on the mainland there was much activity, both on the ground and in the air. We had a grandstand, but rather dangerous view of this, especially when the ships in the bay opened up with their bofers and heavy racket guns on low-flying FW-190s and ME-109s, which would appear from the island with very little or no warning. We were waiting to go ashore to join up with the airborne forces, when a message came through telling us, to our chagrin, that we would not be required. Apparently, all was going well. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus.